Hello, everybody. This is Nick Fletcher from Children's Healthcare Atlanta and Emory University, and I am happy to be closing out my second year with interview for a PD pod. My first episode was actually two years ago at the annual meeting in Charlotte uh, with Michael Vitale, which was uh, certainly a, a terrific experience. And obviously, a lot has occurred since then, but I continue to be very appreciative to all of you who are willing to listen to me uh, every month or so. So thank you for the support, and hopefully you will enjoy this episode. This episode is also a special one for me, as I would say most of them are, uh, but this one is especially poignant. A lot of times I get asked by residents and fellows, as well as some junior positive members about mentorship and how to get involved as a mentee and how to find the right mentor. And I thought that it would be worth doing an episode where we focused on mentorship. And in order to do so, I wanted to highlight one of the POSNA members who has been incredibly successful at a young age, uh, both academically but also professionally. And I'm especially proud of her because she is an Emory alum. And we at Emory are obviously proud of our alums, and we don't have a tremendous number of folks who have gone into pediatric orthopedics over time. So this is a pretty neat opportunity. The person who I'm speaking of is Lindsay Andres, who is the current chief of spine out at CHLA, having recently taken over from her senior partner, Dave Skaggs. And when I approached Lindsay about this interview, she actually said that she thought the best thing to do would be to get her mentors on. And so that includes Dave Skaggs, uh, aforementioned, as well as Vern Tolo. And so I think that this was a, a really unique opportunity. Looking at their CVs as a pretty daunting, even for somebody who's contemporary to Lindsay. Uh, Lindsay alone, at least on PubMed, has like 70 publications. She's been uh, the course chair for SRS. She's been the uh, uh, head of the uh, ICIOS meeting and is, holds leadership positions in numerous organizations. Dave has over 250 peer-reviewed publications. Vern Tolo also has a tremendous number of publications, but has also been president of basically every orthopedic society with an acronym, including the Academy, POSNA, SRS, as well as the orthopedic section of the AAP. So this is really a true power group. Um, and I wanted to focus on how you build a superstar pediatric orthopedist with Lindsay as my, uh, as my muse, if you will. She was obviously a little bit uh, uh, skeptical about having all the focus on her. So I think it was nice to have everybody else in. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. I think this was a terrific opportunity. And I thank you again for all listening. I hope to see you next month in uh, Dallas if you are able to come. Thank you and enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Lindsay Andres, Dave Skaggs, and Vern Tolo. So, okay, well, we'll get started. Well, uh, I'd like to thank everybody for uh, tuning in today, and I'm very excited to be here with uh, three incredible uh, clinicians and uh, physicians and friends um, from across the country, although uh, two of them are not too far from me now in Georgia. Um, so Vern Tolo, Dave Skaggs, and Lindsay, all of whom are from uh, from L.A., as you're, I'm sure, all aware. And the this is a little bit of a different podcast concept than, I, than we've done in the past. This will be focusing a bit more on mentorship. And uh, for those of you who, who aren't aware, Lindsay is, our, uh, is one of our stellar Emory graduates. Uh, and as an Emory physician, we're incredibly proud of her. And I think one of the things that's been so awesome for me to see as somebody who's, who is uh, 
pretty contemporary to her is um, how well she's done on a professional level, on sort of an academic level. And so I sort of had this idea of how does one go about building a superstar pediatric orthopedist? And I'm going to use Lindsay and put her on the spot, and she's going to be very embarrassed about me saying that. But she's going to be sort of the model that we're going after. And I know the answer in some respects uh, is is related to her, and, and we're not going to discount that. But I know that a lot of it uh, is going to be related to those who are, are sur- surrounding her. And I know that Woody Sankar always has that slide at the end of his talks that we all stand on the shoulders of giants. And I know that the two giants who she, she stands on the shoulders are, uh, of are, are with her in practice. Um, and, and I know that Dave knows, and Lindsay obviously knows, my mentor, Bob Bruce, who I, who I look at in a similar vein to, I'm sure, how she looks at you two, has been incredibly helpful to me. And so the story that I'm trying to get here is how, does, how, how did this whole process start uh, with Vern, obviously, initially, and then leading into Dave uh, uh, joining and then coming up in, in the leadership uh, positions uh, out at uh, CHLA, and then obviously Lindsay as well. And I'm sort of curious how this is going to take us. So um, as a background, Vern, thank you for, for being here. Vern uh, has been doing this for a while, and we were just talking that he has uh, finally slowed down from the surgical side, much to uh, his chagrin, I think. Uh, but you graduated from college college in uh, Moorhead, Minnesota, I believe, back in 1964, and then you were at Hopkins for a while, and then went to SickKids, and then went back to Hopkins before you finally came out to CHLA. Is that a a fair uh, uh, summary of of your path up until LA? Yeah, that's that's, uh, really what it was. I went from this small college in northern Minnesota out to Hopkins, and uh, as Sort of a strange story because I only applied to two med schools, Hopkins and Harvard, and told them it was, I was too cheap. What didn't have enough money to go out to the East Coast to interview. And so they said, well, we'll be, talk to somebody in Minnesota. So I spoke to a cardiac surgeon at the Mayo Clinic and a week later was into Hopkins. So I'd never been to Baltimore before the first day of medical school. But things worked out really well. And I ended up being there almost 20 years, all told, with med school uh, residency and then being on the faculty for 11 years and then had the opportunity to come out to LA as the first full-time person at uh, children's hospital in LA. And was that what, first of all, that's a, that's a great story. I'm sure just like all the young surgeons on the group would say their med school process went, uh, went like, but was that a, uh, <laughs> was, was that a, uh, was there something about LA other than obviously the beautiful weather and, uh, and sort of a, a change of scenery that brought you out there that a vision that you saw at the time? Uh, I'd never spent really any time in LA at all. I'd never lived, lived anywhere near Southern California. Uh, the at Hopkins, I was uh, I was pretty happy. I really liked Hopkins, but it was difficult getting some funding for the pediatric orthopedics within the big department of orthopedics because we were all at one place. And after I had failed to get some funding from an endowment in pediatric surgery that I thought was due us, I wasn't really looking around. But that's when the offer came out, and I said, "Well, I'll take a look at it." And then the Children's Hospital actually set up a nice package of support. Uh, to allow us to build something here. And uh, so we took advantage of it and uh, things worked out really well. That's, uh, that's great. So we're obviously going to be talking about sort of mentorship. So I'm curious, back in the 60s and 70s, when you were sort of going through this, did you have mentors who, who you uh, relied on to help you help guide you as to whether or not this decision was as good as it seemed? You know, it was, it was funny with the size of the academic programs these days, we only had four full-time 
orthopedic surgeons at Johns Hopkins in the department. And uh, our, our mentorship was almost peer-to-peer with the other residents more than we were with faculty. And uh, I can't say I really had a mentor uh, in orthopedics until I got to my pediatric orthopedic fellowship when I was with Bob Gillespie in Toronto, and he was a real mentor for me. Prior to that, I guess the mentors that I sort of looked on, I was in the Army for a couple of years and spent one year with Jim Herndon and myself running an amputee service. And Jim was an academic person who later was chief at Harvard. And he sort of steered me in the direction of academic research and looking at academic programs. But within the residency program itself, curiously enough, I really didn't have much in the way of an orthopedic mentor. That's uh, that's interesting. Definitely a different time than nowadays. So when you came out, you were the only man in uh, in the boat for a while. How long was it before you uh, sort of started to uh, add on faculty? Was it right away or did you have to establish something first? There were a group of uh, six or seven uh, people in the community who had had some fellowship training in pediatric orthopedics who had been taking the call before I got there. And so we managed to get them to continue the call while we gradually transitioned to a full-time program. And, and one year after I got there, we hired our first person and then actually started a fellowship about two years after I got there. And then we've continued to increase. And uh, Dave was one of our uh, early fellows. And we were hoping we could keep him on in the faculty afterwards, but there wasn't quite space at the time. And fortunately, he showed up again pretty soon afterwards. Well, and so that that's a perfect segue. So, Dave, you uh, you were there, but then you actually went off and because uh, because are are you originally the East Coast guy? I know that you were at Amherst and then Columbia, but then you came on out. Where... I was born in Boston, actually, and uh, picked up a wicked piss of a Boston accent. <laughs> and then when my family moved to the Midwest, I had to go to speech therapy for eight years. Um, so then moved back to New Jersey. You know, which is where I went to high school. And so New Jersey is, I guess, my home now, you know, aside from L.A., which is my real home now. Gotcha. Okay. But, but so because you went and got uh, – you did a, a research degree at Columbia as well, right? Was that part of the plan all along, or were you waiting for a position to op- open up at CHLA, or how was that all factored in? Well, it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> you know, many times people want – uh, young people to take off an additional year to do research. And they cite what a good thing it is for your career. I always worry a little bit of it is it's kind of like cheap labor and it's good for an institution. Um, so I was one of the original people in the orthopedic research lab. And I was asked if I would take off a year of residency and do research. I'm like, no, but if you count it for a year, then I'll do it. And up until the very last day, I was told they wouldn't do that. And they called me and said, okay, we'll do it. So it was actually, it was kind of the infolded research residence, infolded into residency, um, my year of research. No kidding. That's sort of fortuitous. And now you were, you were with, uh, remind me, you were close with Mike Vitale. Were you guys, you weren't the same year, you were a year apart or a couple of years apart? He might have been two or three years behind. We uh, played on the rugby team together. We got to be good friends then. Yes. Wow. That's uh, that's a, a small world playing 
uh, rugby with yep. the guy who's still your best friend 20 something years later. Yep. Um, so, and I know that, that again, looking at it from a mentor side of things as a, as a close colleague, similar to probably how Lindsay and I would be, you guys have been mentors for a while. Who are your, I'm sure Vern was one of your early mentors, but who are some of your other mentors that you look to during those, those early years? So I met my first real mentor in the interview process for medical school. Um, and he was a, you know, Dean of Admissions, Andrew Franz. He discovered prolactin, this wonderful man. And in the middle of the interview, he was looking at my records and he said, hmm, hmm, you've played a lot of sports. Will you play rugby for us? I said, I don't know, never played rugby. <laughs> and right then he called up the president of the rugby team. The guy showed up, you know, with the appropriate size clothes and even shoes. And I went to rugby practice, like right then and there. I'm not exaggerating. And I went back to the office. He said, will you play rugby for us? I said, yes, I will. He says, you found your medical school. And I said, the only condition is you have to be my mentor. Um, so from that point on, maybe once a month or so, we'd sit down, we'd go out to dinner at the, you know, New York, there were these clubs and it was wonderful having somebody that believed in me and helped me be larger or do better things than I could have on my own. So there were certainly times when I was kind of ready to quit and he'd say, David, David, sometimes you have to work harder than you think you should and it's okay and you'll get through it. So it's really good having someone there who believed in me, maybe more than I believed in myself at that time. That's great. Well, Lindsay, I, I'm, I'm waiting for your story about how you played some sport or flew an airplane with the dean of admission to your med school because <laughs> Vern and Dave have pretty spectacular stories. But uh, and I assume Emery was relatively straightforward for you? I, it was it was a much more straightforward path than that. Um, I um, uh, I didn't have to play any sports audition, although I, I don't think I would have necessarily minded that. I, I came in the era of you apply to a bajillion different schools, um, and um, I I actually ended up at Emory. I had started at Colorado State because I was sure that I was going to be a veterinarian, and then um, I spent a year. Um, uh, well, I spent a semester doing semester at sea and uh, we went around the world and I really saw the impact of human medicine and decided to switch paths. And then that's how I ended up at Emory um, as, and finished my undergrad there. And then I was like an Emory lifer until I came out to L.A. and saw the light, literally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, so from from two applications to med school to a million applications to med school, that's, uh, that's terrific. <laughs> so Vern, I'm curious uh, because again, this is sort of one of the, some of the stuff that I wanted to hear about. What when when Dave was new, what were some of the things that you saw that he easily excelled at, and where were areas that you felt that he needed help with or that you could help uh, him with early on? Well, he didn't need any help with his confidence. <laughs> No. <laughs> Does he now? <laughs> no, I, I mean it was pretty clear to see that uh, Dave's a bright guy who's got a lot of a lot of innovative ideas, a lot of good thoughts. He also uh, provides excellent patient care, and you can tell pretty quickly what the commitment is of uh, people when you're working with them next to them with the patient care, how they how they treat patients, how they deal with it. He was technically very good uh, from the surgical standpoint. And a, I just think the uh, overall uh, attraction that I had today was the fact that he was an inquisitive guy who looked to be very talented in a variety of different ways and had 
ability to uh, meld well and get to get, get work together uh, in a very collegial uh, way. So I think that as part of part of mentorship is concerned, the initial things you want to try to help out uh, the people who look promising to you to sort of get get some experience and, and get a stake in the things they're looking for to do for the rest of their life, and then hopefully continue some relationship with them uh, for several years after that. But Dave just, uh, I guess you'd say he had it. He was really good. That's terrific. So, so would you say, uh, obviously, you, 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 Lindsay came along a little bit later. Was it a similar uh, insight into Lindsay's, um, you know, future role. Cause she's obviously driven and very smart. Uh, did you see similar things and were there different ways that you sort of treated her as he, as she came on board to perhaps how you treated Dave? Well, I had a little bit less of a <clears throat> direct role at that time because, uh, Dave was chief and I was, uh, starting over again. And, uh, so, uh, but obviously Lindsay, uh, came immediately to be seen by me and by others as extremely bright. And uh, it wasn't long before she said she wanted somebody's job who was already working with us. So it was uh, <laughs> didn't take long for us to understand why that was the case and why we would benefit from her, from her being there. So, Nick, I can tell you how he treated us differently. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember when I had my first sacrectomy. It maybe took 18 hours. It was front back. I was like, Vern, you going to come help me? You going to come help me? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'll be right there. He never made it. Lindsay and I are in the gym today, and Lindsay's like, yeah, anytime I ever asked Vern for help, he was always there. She goes, guess I'm the favorite child. <laughs> that is great. That's great. So, so Dave, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, turn it to you because I, you and I have spoken. I know that you are, uh, are very big on mentorship and also probably have some sort of a, a little bit of a – formal process that you might look at towards mentoring Lindsay when she started out so I'm going to ask you a similar question what were some of the things that you saw immediately that that she excelled in and what were the areas that you thought you could help her and how often did you meet I think one of the questions that I get a lot is how do how do I turn this into a more formal or or uh, integrated process rather than just off the cuff meetings so you know I describe Lindsay as the once in a decade person or maybe every two or three decades that even if you don't have a job, you hire her because there just aren't a lot of her made in the world. And whoever hires her is lucky because their department is going to become better. Um, and that became evident very early on. Um, you know, part of it was just playing well with others. Part of it was incredible attention to detail. And I, I love you know, what Vern said to me my first day as a fellow is he said, David, nothing is quite so impressive as giving good patient care. And, uh, and to this day, I think that's probably the best advice I could have to new fellows coming in. And many times you see people who seem more interested in learning or publishing or getting a test right or getting a job. But the people who are the best really, really care about the patient. And I could tell that that's what was most important to Lindsay, that she really cared about the patient. And when you have someone who's incredibly talented and puts the patient first, you know that they're going to do well. And as the you know, leader or chief, that's someone you're not going to have to worry about. They're going to give great care to their patients. And then the other thing which Vern alluded to is uh, playing well with others, you know, being collegial. And I would say I've seen many, many more surgeons fail for lack of collegiality 
than for anything related to technical skill or intelligence or even giving medical care. And that's another area where anyone who's ever spent more than two seconds with Lindsay realizes that she thrives. Like everybody wants to be next to Lindsay. She's fun and collegial and a true team player who never hesitates to take more call and not tell anyone about it. That's awesome. All right. So Lindsay, uh, all things I knew about you or that, that I thought I knew about you, I'm going to turn it around as somebody who's contemporary to me. Cause I sort of remember going through this not long ago where people, and you know, Bob very well, uh, as well, cause he was one of your mentors when you were at Emory, uh, say a lot of great things about you. And there's a little bit of a feeling of imposter syndrome. And I get asked this a bit <laughs> early on about, you know, from, from faculty coming out, like, am I really able to do all this? So I'm curious, uh, what were some of the things that you looked to Dave and to Vern for early on to sort of, uh, um, you know, rectify some of those challenges that you may have had been struggling with internally as you went through and, and things got, that was funny. Sorry. That was Bob Bruce calling me. Um, uh, some of the, re- rectify some of the things that you were going through internally, uh, as you were, as you were ramping up, as things were getting more complicated in your career and you started having your initial complications and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it is mentorship is so crucial because we, you always do have complications. Um, my, uh, I remember one of my first complications. I always tell this to the fellows um, that I, I, because we get to take attending call as a fellow, and I had a supercondylar that fell apart, and I was on the phone with my father about it, and he said, "Oh." you thought you were God's gift to orthopedics and you weren't going to have any complications. And we all know that's not how it goes. Um, and it is, uh, it is still to this day, a great reassurance um, to have uh, both Skaggs and Tolo to talk over cases with, um, to make sure that um, even if it doesn't change your management, that it, uh, you, you have another set of eyes on it. Um, and it is, uh, that's a great reassurance now, but it was, it was, I think, very critical in the early stages. Many of the cases that I took on my first few years out in practice, I wouldn't have, um, I wouldn't have had number one, the infrastructure, um, that I benefited from, uh, that, uh, the two of them have established at CHLA. I mean, a lot of that, and I think you had a similar situation where you step into a system where, Neuromonitoring has experience, fluoro has experience, the anesthesiologists have experience, and all of those, um, you become part of a team that the, that the mentors around you have built, um, and uh, that is a really valuable, too. Um, and then, you know, having them as backup, like, I had the confidence to take on a lot of complex cases that I would not have otherwise. So I was going to ask you about that, and and uh, I'm uh, it's it's funny to hear that uh, Vern apparently did all the cases that you wanted with him, and none of the cases that uh, Dave wanted with him. But how did how, uh, how, that's not true? That's not true. <laughs> I didn't say none. How how did you early on, Lindsay and Dave, uh, work in that process? Where uh, because I think this comes up a lot, and I found as I've gotten later into my career, there are still a lot of cases that I really enjoy doing with my partners. But then you start sort of branching out and doing some of the more complex stuff yourself. How did you look at that? And then maybe also on the other side, Vern, is how did you try to, as, as sort of the senior mentor, how did you always make yourself so available to, to Lindsay or, or to Dave as you were going through? 
Who do you want to start uh, with? Oh, uh, Lindsay, how, how did you, as you were sort of uh, working into it, uh, you know, figure out, I want, I'd like help with this type of case. Uh, and I'm going to, on this time type, I'm going to try to do it my own. Yeah. So I think if there was um, the cases that I wanted to make sure I had somebody there the whole time for were the kids that I thought were going to be unstable on the table, like the cardiac kids and um, uh, some of the muscular dystrophy kids and things like that, where I think, um, you know, getting them on and off the table really quickly is very critical from a them doing well standpoint. And they're somebody that shouldn't be part of your learning curve. Um, and I continue to do those kids, um, oftentimes as, uh, as two attending cases, because, um, I'm definitely better and faster with Dave Skaggs across the table or with Bertolo across the table until he, uh, stepped back from doing surgery recently. But, uh, but, you know, we are able to move, um, more quickly without question, but you also want to like grow your own surgical, uh, set, and you don't want to be always doing every case with a second attending. Um, and for us, it's also critical as, you know, we, the same situation you have, we're training residents and fellows and we have an obligation to train them. Um, and I, you know, want them to have the opportunity to, which you don't get as much of as a second attending case. So one of the things that I did kind of early on, most of my spines, um, I would kind of have an estimated time of arrival um, from, um, uh, Choi, who's unfortunately no longer with us, um, uh, or Skaggs or Tolo that I'm starting this case at seven 30. Can you check on me at lunch? And if we're not moving along, then we'll move it along. Or, you know, um, Choi actually oftentimes was the person that had a little, cause he had a shorter afternoon clinic on the days that I was in the OR. So he would just like, you know, come down after he saw the handful of patients he had in the afternoon. And if um, we were closing off the table, great. And if not, um, he would jump in and, um, and, you know, having somebody there to, to make sure that you're not just trying to figure out what you should do and letting something drag on to the point that you end up with the night crew and um, you end up having a kid not do as well, I think is really critical. So it's, it's, you know, good to fly on your own, um, but, uh, but with support. And one thing I should mention is if Lindsay and I are doing a spine together and somebody that can't lose blood, it moves so fast. We are literally both putting in pedicle screws on power simultaneously. Things move so fast. And it's, it's such a pleasure having trained together. We're doing things in the same way. You, know, you don't really need to talk. We might headbutt occasionally. And it's you know, just one of the like, great pleasures that you can have of feeling like you're playing for the Yankees and doing well. The scrub techs don't always love it. <laughs> it. It moves really quick when that happens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I would say, you know, Bob always, one of the things that I always love is he says, you know, the beauty of operating together is that I don't feel or he doesn't feel uh, as the case may be, like he has to always be exposing. He's happy to retract. You know, the residents always want to be in doing everything. They want to put every screw in. And he's like, hey, that's a big con- uh, that's a big curve. Why don't you put concave and convex in? Because it's just too hard for me to put them in on the convexity. And I think that that, for me, has been so valuable to have somebody who's not pushing me out of the way, who can sort of help facilitate without taking over the case. So Vern, when you saw when you saw this happening to both Dave and Lindsay early on, how did you make yourself available without uh, potentially 
uh, impeding their their progress and they're impeding their development um, because obviously we as young surgeons need to take on a little bit more and more and more so that we can become the the mentor rather than the mentee at all times. Well, I think at the end of the fellowship, their training is so ex- has been so extensive with spine that uh, they were pretty well accepted as uh, full equals to me as far as uh, being the ability, even though the confidence and the number of cases they did might not have been so great. But I don't think there's anything worse than having somebody in the operating room wishing they had some help and nothing, nothing having available. So I would prioritize always getting to the operating room if somebody asks me to help or if there's a, a monitor or monitoring change, if there's a, a excessive bleeding issue that uh, somebody requests aid for, for me, that's number one priority and I'll drop whatever else there is uh, to do it. I think that uh, one of the things that has struck, struck me a lot compared to international travel that I've done is that how in the United States, once somebody gets done with their fellowship, they're pretty well accepted as an equal peer to somebody who's been in practice for 10, 15 years, where outside the U.S., that is not the case. There's a lot of apprenticeship going on. And I think young surgeons in the U.S. may not appreciate that as much as uh, is really the case. But it's, it's as it should be that with, a, with good training, there's no reason why you shouldn't be accepted as, a, as an equal. But anytime I would have somebody ask for the help, I would be more than happy to try to, but I would not insert myself into their case unless I was asked. Both of them are such a pleasure to have in the OR because they're not, um, they will give an opinion, but they don't take over. Um, and, uh, and that is, um, you know, like I've, I've worked with some other surgeons and other specialties and things like that, where, um, you see that that dynamic isn't the same, um, and Tolo is actually very well known for giving advice without, um, being overbearing about it <laughs> um, and giving it in a way that kind of leads you down the right path, but you think you made the decision on your own. <laughs> so it's a real art form that um, that I'm working on it as I'm mentoring others. Now, the other thing that Vern did outside of the operating room to kind of, you know, train us to really be our own attendings is during conference. You know, we have a weekly conference where all the pre and post-op cases are shown and very early on, Vern will say, well, what do you think about this, Dave? Or what do you think about this, Bob? And he would make it established in front of all the fellows and residents and PAs and whoever's in conference that, you know, Lindsay is now in attending and her opinion is valued and he's going to call on her publicly. And I've really tried to emulate that. Um, You know, when the chief shows respect to the junior attending, that's when everybody else does. So Vern has this wonderful way of teaching by example without saying, please note I'm doing this. That's great. And, and so, uh, so one of the things that, that comes across very much in listening to the three of you is, is the mutual sort of adoration and respect. And, I've, and uh, Lindsay, again, knows my relationship with Bob. It's very similar. One of the things, though, that is going to come up in any relationship, and my wife would certainly uh, attest to this, is that not everything is rosy. So I'm curious to, uh, about two questions. So one is, especially as the relationship has grown, how do the mentors in this group, uh, and we're probably all sort of co-mentoring, but how do the, the, the mentors in this group uh, give criticism? Um, are there sort of 
uh, thoughts on this. I actually reached out to some of my friends who do the other Posna podcast, and that was one of the things that they wanted me to ask the most is how, how do you give criticism to a mentee? And then the other sort of corollary to that is what happens when you disagree? How has that worked? How has that progressed over time so that it's, it, it's changed from sort of senior surgeon, junior surgeon to your all partners, but again, there's, there's certainly a different level of experience and, men, and seniority there. And I'm happy to, I'll start with Dave on this one. Hmm. I, I'm not sure I have something to say yet. So you're, the question is, how is criticism given? How do you I, give criticism to your wait. mentee? Oh, 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 okay. Lindsay's got it. Up. Go, Lindsay. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, I think that this is one uh, area where mentees, this mm-hmm. is what you can bring to the relationship. Um, and I think that um, I try to, and probably not as often as I should, but I try to ask for criticism. And I also... Um, I think I've um, taken the criticism that's been given in a way that is not defensive, um, but is productive. Um, I think that I was um, blessed with a good background. And I will also uh, credit uh, Bob Bruce, who I wouldn't be in orthopedics without. Um, So I came with um, probably more surgical background than a lot of the trainees. But where I really lacked was I didn't I didn't excel at public speaking, um, and I definitely remember very distinctly being at IPOS and seeing another CHLA fellow or former fellow who I will not call out by name giving a talk and saying, wow, that person's really great on stage. And Dave said they weren't always. They definitely weren't when they started. And a light bulb went off uh, that that's also like a teachable skill. So I really feel like I've consciously made an effort to try to improve my speaking skills and I've gotten good feedback and I sometimes give a talk and get off stage and Dave goes, that could have been better. Um, And sometimes I get off stage and Dave goes, you nailed that one. And um, I think that those are, there are opportunities um, for mentees to open that door and make sure that the, the feedback that you give or that you receive isn't um, you don't get defensive about it because that makes nobody wants to hurt people's feelings or get them upset. And I find that even with our fellows that there are the fellows that you say, Oh, I think maybe you want to work on this more. And they go, Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll work on that more. And then there's the other ones where they go, Oh, well, no, I didn't. (laughs) Um, And and that it discourages you from giving the feedback that could be productive. And and one thing I'd like to touch on that Lindsay said is when we can, when we have time, we like to actually give our talks to each other ahead of time. And she is now equally helping me as I'm helping her. And we also say we'd rather criticize hard privately and be better. And sometimes that I come off stage, Lindsay's like, Hey, you could have done this better or this was confusing or you nailed it. So I'd say with all of us, you know, in Vern too, we, there is a certain amount of mentor mentee, but then there's also a certain amount of just being a partner and it goes both ways. And I find that when it goes both ways, that opens up the lines of communications so that uh, criticizing and patting on the back comes a lot easier. Yeah, I agree. Vern, you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I think giving criticism is, uh, one of the important things is what Lindsay mentioned, that it's important for the mentee to uh, be receptive to criticism. And if they're going to have a relationship of the mentor-mentee, they have to be willing to uh, listen to what may not be laudatory comments to them. I think that if you're talking about 
say, a junior faculty person who is has done something in a case that may be different than what I would have done. I think that's a discussion. I mean, there's more than one way to do different things. But if it's something that caused uh, direct patient harm, then I think you have to be just upfront and and very blunt with them and say that that's not acceptable. Like if they didn't come in to see a patient with a tenting of the skin with a supracondylar fracture or a vascular problem or something, and they didn't show up for 12 hours or something, that's that's not something you soften your criticism with. You just have to say this is this is unacceptable. But if there's just the type of treatment they did or the way they they did their construct on their on their scoliosis or where they put their blade plate in for the hip, there are more than one way to do these things. And I think a discussion of pros and cons would, would suffice then rather than being too critical. Yeah. And a technique that was taught in business school and you know coaching schools as well is sit down with someone and say, how do you think you're doing? Because if you have to deliver some criticism, there's a pretty good chance that they know they're doing something wrong. And if they bring it up, then all of a sudden they're not going to be so defensive. So I find that's a wonderful technique. And in coaching school, they say, ask people something three times. Like, is there anything else? Like, how do you feel about that? Do you want to, do you want to go deeper into it? And just by allowing there to be some silence, asking over and over, uh, frequently what needs to be discussed comes out. I think that's one of the positive things that I see coming out of um, the kind of interest in uh, focus on surgical coaching is, you know, not only just that continued learning, but also, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't need somebody to just be a cheerleader. Like we want to win championships. You know? <laughs> and so um, uh, it, like, if there's something that I can, I can hear that's going to make me more competitive or more, um, you know, improve my performance, then that is, um, that's, I want to hear those things. Um, and actually Skaggs has a great, um, slide in one of his talks that, uh, is like, you know, if you're always the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong rooms. Um, and I think that it is, it, it is so critical for us to surround ourselves with really talented people, which I, that's, that's my, I think, greatest gift is that I find talented people and spend time with them and, um, have had the benefit of, um, having my eyes opened on many occasions by their insight. Nick, you brought something up early on that may be worthy of discussion. Um, you know, how formal should the mentor process be? And I know that there's a lot of push towards that. And the more push towards making it formal almost seems like a negative. Um, it seems like the best mentor-mentee relationships arise organically when people are around each other and they realize that they you know, want to enter into this relationship. Um, the other thing that's really important in business school, they taught that the mentor actually gets more out of the relationship than the mentee. And people as the mentee don't realize that. They think they're, they're burdening you by asking for help. I'm like, no, we want to be asked for help. Like, you know, I want to have value. I want to have impact in the world. And, you know, Lindsay, for instance, part of my family loves her family. She's like the favorite daughter. They've been over for, you know, Christmas dinner together and, you know, Thanksgiving dinner. And I think that, you know, that's not something where you schedule mentorship time. And sometimes the best time is bumping into each other in the hallway. So I generally don't schedule formal mentoring sessions. It just feels awkward. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Brian. I agree completely with you. I think that uh, everybody has different mentorship styles, but I think for us, it's worked out well to not have formal sessions and actually interact on a 
daily or multiple days out of the week basis and just see how people observe people performing at, at conferences, uh, seeing what they're doing surgically and continuing a communication that's there, that's available really every day uh, rather than setting up a 15-minute time every two weeks. And I think that some of the mentorship programs are big on putting up reading, reading lists, uh, have people read. And uh, I, I was involved with the leadership program, fellows program for the academy for a number of years. And uh, we would put up these reading lists. And I think it's worth reading some of the leadership uh, things. But I think uh, everybody can seek out their own signs on that. And I'm not too big on reading lists for mentorship uh, programs. POSNAT does have one actually in their mentorship program. So, uh, Dave, you, you made a perfect segue because, uh, as, as, as many people have, have probably noticed, your email has changed. Um, you are now in the same city but in a different hospital now that you're at Cedar sinai So one of the questions that I have, and, and Lindsay, I mean, you alluded to Bob being a mentor for you, but he's obviously now 2,500 miles away. Um, what happens to the mentorship process when it's so intimate and close on a regular basis and now you're not in the same hospital? And how do you sort of retain the relationship that you have with Lindsay and Vern now that you're not necessarily in the same hospital every day? I know that she well, does a few cases over there, but. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, part of it is it could be done a little bit easier these days with phone or video or things like that. Uh, part of it is all of a sudden you do have to formally make time. For example, we're going to now have a pediatric spine conference one day a month at Children's and one day a month at Cedars. So we're going to force ourselves to make a little bit of an effort and get in a room together. And the other thing is travel. You know, right now we are at the PSST meeting and I'm spending an extra night basically to spend time with Lindsay and her family. Um, it's, you know, if you value a relationship, one has to put time into it. It's just like any relationship. I think after the after so many years that we've been together, like particularly myself and Dave, that it's not so much a mentor mentorship relationship; it's a peer to peer relationship, and it's like a friendship relationship uh, rather than one of us learning from the other. But I think that that's what a good mentor mentee relationship should, over a number of years, evolve into a uh, a friendship rather as as much as uh, as like a teaching or mentor relationship. Actually, can I tell a story about that? Um, I was skiing in Deer Valley, and I got word that uh, Vern had a cardiac event, and he was in the hospital. And I told my, my family, and it was interesting. My, I think my son, who was about four years old, said, Dad, he's one of your best friends. You should go see him. So I did. I immediately jumped on a plane, went right to the ICU in the hospital, and no one was allowed in at that hour. And I came in and I think I must have spent like an hour or two with you. I don't know. Right? We just talked about life. He had a big cardiac surgery the next morning. And he says, you know, the nurses didn't let anyone in because every time someone came in, my heart rate went up. And since you came in, my heart rate went down. So they, they allow <laughs> you to be here. And it was interesting that my family said he's one of your best friends. And he is. And, uh, you know, there was no way I was going to let him go into heart surgery the next day without me physically being there. And then I went from the hospital, you know, back to the airport and flew back and, you know, just took a red eye. That's a great story. Yeah. I, pr I appreciated it a lot. <laughs> and I'll tell you, so I got a new office now. My favorite thing, and I actually get teary-eyed looking at it, is this picture of Vern and I holding a golf trophy. So neither one of us are good golfers. I'm in particular a <laughs> bad golfer. And we entered a tournament together. 
We were the lowest ranked people at the tournament. We won our flight. We have a trophy. And it's the thing in my office that makes me the happiest every time I'm awesome. That is yeah. so great. That's good. Well, so so uh, another area that comes up a bit um, in question, I'm going to turn it back to Lindsay, because uh, obviously that, that's, a, that's a great story. But certainly early on in our practice, and I mean every day, complications uh, are sort of right around the corner and, and happen. And I'm curious if you can comment, Lindsay or Dave, um, as, as sort of the at one point the junior mentee, what makes the most difference when something goes wrong from the people who you trust the most and, and who you uh, can go to the most? In other words, when when you're early in your career and complications started happening, what were the things that you were looking for from Dave and Byrne? I mean, I think that the most important thing is what you just said, which is that you have mentors that you truly trust um, and that you know that you can be like, completely forthcoming about the situation and, um, and that they will give you insight and that, you know, they, um, they will help you manage it as well as it can be managed. I mean, we all have complications. That's like, you know, the, um, the, actually, I think Tolo has a more eloquent way of saying it, but, but, um, the highs are high and the lows are low in this business. And, um, you're, best to not get too carried away with either one of those um, and to have uh, people around that you trust that, that reassure you that they're going to help you make sure you provide the best care in those situations. I mean, I think overwhelmingly one of the things that we have the most in common is um, that we truly care about our patients so much. Um, and I know that when I, burden them with my complications, um, that they, um, they understand how much that impacts me. Um, and, uh, and they give me insight that comes from that perspective. And one of the things I've heard Vern say about this, and I now say it to people is it helps to talk about it. When a surgeon has a complication, they're suffering and simply talking about it helps. And the other thing that helps and you know, Vern is very upfront that if you did something wrong in patient care, he tells you, you know, it's good to know that you're going to get the straight dope. If you made a mistake, you're going to get it. And if you didn't make a mistake and you're told you didn't make a mistake, you know, it's not just pretend, you know, that you really didn't think you made a mistake. Um, so I'd say that's probably one of the most important times in communication to actually trust that you're going to tell each other the truth. I think you, the comments about having somebody to talk to, I think, are really important. When I finished my fellowship, I was in an unusual situation when I went back to Hopkins on the faculty as being the only pediatric orthopedist there. So I was the my, my own, I was the chief of myself. And if I had a complication, it was uh, there was no one to talk to about it. And I would call the the person I did my fellowship with, even up in Toronto, just so to have somebody else to talk to, because even though they may not have any kind of answer or any difference, just being able to share your uh, your bad experience with someone else, to me, just opens up the ability to try to figure it out a little bit better. And uh, I think, like Dave said, we try to be pretty open with each other and everybody knows whose complications are in it. We, at our M&M conferences, we are brutally honest with each other about uh, what should have been done or what could have been done different. And the other thing I like what Lindsay said is if we are all truly putting the patient first, which we are, then it helps to feel that others are on your team or rooting for you, trying to help, that there's not being blamed. You know, blame is not being thrown at you. 
It's more of a how are we going to make this better for everybody? We're on the same team. We have the same mission. Yeah, I couldn't. I could not agree more with all those comments. I think they're all so poignant, um, and it's challenging. I think early on when you come out of fellowship and um, and to I guess it was Lindsay's comment from her dad earlier about oh you thought you were God's gift. I mean, you re- <laughs> it comes up pretty quickly, and I think it's hard the first time you hear uh, somebody else telling you, but most of the time you already know, you've already seen the x-ray, you've already, you know, experienced the complication. And so, you know, uh, what you did and what you could have done differently and having somebody be honest, but also, you know, uh, compassionate and understanding that, you know, they're going to help you mentally and emotionally, uh, get through the problem and help think through the next steps, I think is, uh, is so incredibly helpful. And it's great to have, have a team like yours to do that. You know, in in this situation and in giving criticism, I think a absolutely key thing for the mentor is the mentor can't be feeling anger at the mentee if they're going to have an effective relationship. And I have had times when I thought surgeons really misbehaved and I was angry at them. And I might have to wait two or three days to calm down before I really feel love in my heart for them and I want to make it better for them. So I would say a mentor should never be criticizing if they're feeling anger. Maybe that's good for all relationships. I was going to say, I think that's great. And it's something that I struggle with still because I tend to to come out guns blazing and I've, I've tried to learn over time not to do that as much. So, so Vern, I I wanted to ask you a question about sort of the academic uh, uh, process of developing, like I said, a superstar pediatric orthopedist, because that was the the concept of this, uh, of this uh, podcast. So your CV, which is about this long, and for those at home, that's about, I don't know, three inches on your uh, webpage, I'm sure is like a, a one hundredth of your actual CV. But in that very short line, it mentions uh, your leadership roles, which are pretty unbelievable. SRS president, positive president, academy president, and the list really goes on. Orthopedic section of the uh, of AP president. Um, as well as obviously the JBJS editor-in-chief. So you have truly hit the pinnacle of academics and, and you've got lots of publications and all that. And then you have these two junior partners who are also academic superstars, but that doesn't happen overnight. And clearly both Dave and, and Lindsay are very motivated. I'm curious because one of the things that comes up uh, in my own relationship with my mentor is that I get driven into these academic areas. And I remember a couple of years back, this was probably eight years back, uh, when I was still sort of building my practice and I had a meeting coming up and my family went to Florida for spring break. And I was like, Oh no, no, you guys go, I'm going to stay here. And he really has almost never gotten mad at me. And that's the one time he got mad at me. He said, if you ever do this again, we are in serious trouble because you can't do that. And so the question that I have is how do you a foster sort of academic development and whether it be within the societies, whether it be from a publication standpoint, but also try to get your mentees to achieve the work-life balance that I think we all strive for. And that uh, Min Coker, who was a, uh, a podcast guest a few months ago, said that he is nowhere near getting to. And I think most of us would say that we're not great at it, but how do you, how do you try to promote that? Um, well, I think that uh, you mentioned the size of my CV. I think Dave's is about triple that size, and Lindsay's, I think, after eight or nine years, is probably equal to mine. So, <laughs> I've had. Uh, well, I've, I do have interest in academic things. Obviously, I've had early on where there was virtually no research support when I was at Hopkins, so you had to do everything for yourself. And having uh, at Children's, Dave has been very instrumental in setting up excellent research infrastructure, which has been a huge help for 
any of our group who's interested in academic production because it makes it so much easier. They don't have to ever deal with an IRB ever in their life. Uh, <laughs> so having an infrastructure like that set up certainly makes the academic production uh, a bit easier. But you still have to generate ideas, which both Dave and Lindsay have been excellent at. I've had an interest in these uh, orthopedic associations uh, uh, for years, as you can tell. And I think that uh, for me, that's been an important component to see something outside of the practice area that I'm working at. You get different ideas from people in different settings that you can put into your own institution. You can see how other people are are approaching things. And uh, I was fortunate to have the ability to uh, have some leadership roles uh, offered to me. So I, it's, it's one of my career that I really have very fond memories of the ability to work with all these different associations. And it's, it really strikes me how uh, out the pediatric orthopedic group in particular are the, probably the most altru- altruistic people that I ever came across in the entire orthopedic surgery realm. It's a great group to work with. So I think, uh, you know, people's interests are different. Uh, I think for as far as work-life balance is concerned, I have two kids. One's uh, son's an orthopedic surgeon who's uh, 51 now, almost 52. So I've got my daughter's a book design editor in San Francisco. Um, I've had the, um, what I think is a real uh, favor in my life to have had control of my schedule my entire career, which I think makes a big difference for people who are developing burnout at the present time. Uh, when, like when I was at Hopkins, I, I could set my own schedule. I could go to my kids' Little League games and even coached uh, Little League baseball a few years, having to be there at five o'clock. And uh, I would always try to get to their sports events. And I think that uh, I think that the ability to control your schedule, if you have that ability, will make a huge difference in your happiness of the career because you can then establish your work-life balance a little bit better. Not everybody has the ability to do that, I'm afraid. And I think even increasingly now, it's harder. But uh, when I was coming through my career, there were fewer pediatric orthopedists, and it was something that uh, has enhanced my uh, uh, my pleasure of life. Yeah, and it's you know hearing you say it that way just makes so much sense. You know the way Daniel Pink talks about it now is autonomy, and you know what he says is that the highest functioning people do best with the more autonomy they can have. So as a mentor, if you're able to give your mentees autonomy, you're, if a chief is able to give autonomy to the surgeons, everybody's happier. And you know that's why, why some people want to be on salary. But at the same time, if you're all your own small business people, and if you kind of earn more if you work more and earn less if you, you know, work less and you take off time, it doesn't affect anybody else. I do think allowing people to have autonomy is one of the most important things for happiness at work. And I think as orthopedic surgeons, we can have a lot of autonomy. Totally agree. And I think if you look at our partners, um, uh, they all have very different setups. um, And uh, a lot of us have very different schedules in terms of like our hours, our satellites, our interests, all those types of things and uh, and the choices that we've made. But I I think that that, um, the the fact that we're allowed to do that um, is largely contributed to our happiness. 
right? Like the hospital occasionally would say, well, how many patients is each doctor going to see in an afternoon? I'm like, I don't know. It's up to them. You know, they make up their own schedule. It could be five. It could be 50, whatever they want. And there was a lot of pushback, as you can imagine, from administration sometimes. But people are just happier running their own schedule. It works. I think our department uh, outproduces in terms of our views and all those types of things compared to um, most of the other departments in terms of salary and things like that. Or it, in general, the um, the departments that are uh, surgeon run, um, their productivity is higher than those that are strictly salaried. Here's your quota, that type of thing. Um, but the fact that we're able to do that with some flexibility that we control, um, it keeps us happier. I mean, I, I love my job, um, but I also love the flexibility to take off a Friday so we could sell a Catalina and spend the weekend there. And, um, everybody needs a little downtime. Um, um, even, uh, if you love it and, and in, uh, in large part because you love it, cause you need, you, I think, owe it to your patients to um, come in um, charged and ready to go and not uh, just overworked and tired because you won't do your best work under those circumstances. And many times I remember hospital administrators will say, well, how many days of vacation do they get? Or how many days of travel do they get? Like, I don't know. I have no idea. They take as much vacation as they want. They travel as much as they want. That's easy. Like, why would we want to manage such a thing? Yeah, I think that's a great system. So, Lindsay, Again, uh, looking at your sort of academic career thus far, what are the things that Vern and Dave put in place that have allowed you to be so successful, uh, sort of, again, on the mentee side of things, if you will? Um, well, I mean, the the biggest one is the, the reputation of the department and the fact that um, the volume was there. And, um, you know, I got to write on their coattails and, uh, you know, now I have patients that come because they knew another patient of mine or they looked me up on the internet or they saw that I was chairman at SRS. But um, even, even so many of the patients just come because of the reputation of the department that they built. Um, but certainly the first five years, nobody I operated on came because of me. They came because of them and uh, they got me. <laughs> and um so I think, you know, it would have been impossible for me on my own to build up that volume um, and that practice uh, without being able to benefit from the work that they had already done. Um, so that that is the thing that I think is the hardest to reproduce in um, when you're off on your own. Um, but then also, the I think we've alluded to the research um, infrastructure that we had. I... Um, you know, my father's an orthopedist and he's a um, uh, very um, innovative guy and he did a lot of innovative things in his practice and they impacted the care he provided directly to his patients um, and then it stopped there. And I think that one of the things that I've seen um, working in this environment is your ability to move the needle of not just patients that you care for, but really how patients are treated um, and how we can move forward in terms of care of these conditions overall. And that's something that I find very exciting and want to be a part of. And to have a setup where you can do research and it doesn't mean just struggling with the IRB or struggling with the Excel sheet and, you know, doing all every measurement yourself, but 
um, to have the infrastructure there to, to be able to come in with an idea and have a team of people help you look at it is, has been really huge. Um, and then I think I've gotten really good feedback in terms of, um, you know, speaking, um, which is another big part of our profession if you're in academic medicine. And I, um, I think I, you know, we oftentimes try to go through our PowerPoint presentations and things like that to get feedback. Um, like Skaggs is like, I never want to see you apologizing for a busy slide. Let's just make it better. <laughs> so, um, the, um, uh, I, I, and Flynn actually says, you know, he realized that what was going to build his career in, um, in orthopedics was much less what he was doing surgically and much more what he was doing in terms of presentations. Um, cause that's what people see. Um, and I think it does, um, it is a value and, um, uh, that I've had great mentorship in terms of that as well. All right, Dave. So a lot of this I, I've heard of, cause you and I have spoken about it before, but for the listener who hasn't heard it in, in sort of, uh, relatively brief summary. What? What? I mean, because you guys have a tremendous machine, or you've built a tremendous machine. Can you sort of give an oversight of what that looks like, or looks like? The from in terms a, of to, research, to, yeah. To, well, just sort of the the overall academic advancement package, if you will, because I think that you've given Lindsay and obviously yourself and your other partners the ability to grow academically. And I would put academics in, I mean, you guys are involved with ortho bullets. You're involved with a lot of leadership amongst, I mean, Lindsay alluded to SRS and I know that she's had a, a huge role in Ichios and she's the pre-course chair this year in POSNET, but then also research. So what does that look like for those who are on the line and sort of interesting what they, what, what do I build? What do I try to build? Yes. Great question. And part of it is building the culture. And I want to make it clear that CHLA has a huge amount of depth. You know, Rachel Goldstein is on the board of the academy. You know, Bob Kay, I think, has been president of the, I don't know, CP Academy or something. I don't even know the letters for. Um, but the culture is of excellence. The culture is of research. And it's kind of like it's, it's cool to produce good research. It's cool to be on stage and to do a good job. And then we're all proud of each other. We feel like we're helping each other's game um, and not competing really in any way, but you know, you do want to do your very best. So one of the most important things I'd say is you don't want people clinically competing. If they're clinically competing after the same thing, there's going to be bad feelings. So for example, we won't hire another hand surgeon until the current hand surgeon says, I'm ready for another one. And that's really unusual. I know in a lot of places, you know, it goes from top down and they just start hiring people. And when you hire too many people who are competing for limited clinical uh, activity, they can't help but be resentment. And another thing that we do is, uh, you know, have a lot of voting. Um, so way back when, like two or three months ago, when I was at CHLA, we would literally vote on our compensation package. We would vote on how we uh, distribute overhead. We would vote on our fellows. We would vote on if we hire someone new. And my vote counted just one like everybody else's. And I think that once you have that culture, people all feel a little bit of autonomy and they all feel a little bit of responsibility to help elevate the team. Um, you know, in this day and age, I'd say that a lot of people might view uh, surgery almost as shift work and maybe as being employed by this big entity. And I'd say that we've been fortunate enough to feel like it's our department. We've built it together and we all have a say in how it's run. 
Um, and then as Vern said, which deserves repeating, if you want someone to do something, you have to make it easy. So if we want people to produce research, we have to make it easy. And the worst thing in the world is having a surgeon deal with an IRB. Oh my God, it's rather like, it's like being on a Zoom call for five hours. Um, so what we need to do is make sure that a surgeon never has to deal with the, I, with the IRB, that we have a team in place to take care of that. We have to make it so easy that a surgeon could dictate an idea, the team could do a literature search, surgeons still should, um, the team can then get it through the IRB, they could run it by the other surgeons, we all review all of each other's projects at a faculty meeting just so we have extra thoughts and maybe other people want to be involved. And then the research team will collect data and present the surgeon with a first draft of a paper. It should be that easy. If it's not, there's not going to be that much work produced. That's terrific. I mean, that's an incredible amount of insight. And I know that that didn't happen overnight, but obviously the productivity of the group uh, and the involvement in, you know, societies at so many levels uh, bears the the fruit of all that work. So that's that's terrific. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, you know me more from the spine circles, but um, to Dave's point, like, we've got a lot of superstars there. And, um, and again, I, I, Building that team culture um, it makes us all, we're competing for the team, not against each other. And we've got the support of a team. And it, you know, it's hard to get those things started initially. And that's something that um, Dave and Vern have done and I get to be the beneficiary of. But there is a momentum that they gain of um it's a fun, productive place to do research. And so other people want to want to play on that team. Um, and so we have medical students that are interested. We have, um, you know, residents that want to do research with us. We have, you know, it, it, it tends to pick up momentum. And, and also, I think, you know, when you're just part of that research machine, um, then it has its own energy that keeps you going. So things keep uh, stay on your radar, they move forward. Um, and you know, you don't want to be the right limiting step of the things that are going forward. So, um, it, uh, helps keep you motivated. That's great. So with academic success, uh, it comes, uh, comes sort of the desire for people to be recruited away and, and to, to find new opportunities. So, um, I don't, uh, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to say anything specifically about Lindsay, but she's probably at some point been looked at for other positions. And obviously Dave, you recently made a little bit of a shift. And so this brings up a little bit of a dilemma, probably in the mentor mentee, especially when it's internal. Um, and so the question that I had, and, and maybe Vern may be the most appropriate since he's probably seen this happen the most, is when that sort of conflict occurs, you've got somebody who you really love, who you've put a lot of time and effort into sort of building along. They naturally, through their successes, are going to be looked at. And now you've got this conflict where they, from an academic standpoint, from a career standpoint, may have the opportunity to look elsewhere and you want to counsel them as a mentor but at the same time, you sort of are interested in keeping them. And I'm sort of curious how that goes, um, because I know that it's not an uncommon situation at this level. Yeah, well, I'm not looking for a job myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> I think, you know, in general, people who I work with or work sort of under me, in a sense, uh, who have been productive and uh, deserve a shot at looking at uh, areas of advancements, I would generally be very 
encouraging for them to look at it seriously and to think about taking it if this is what they want to do. I think that uh, one of the pleasures of being in a mentorship or a chief position is that you help to develop people into a position that can take leadership positions in other hospitals or in other organizations or whatever it is. At the same time, we do have a bit of a problem keeping faculty at uh, Children's. L.A. is an expensive place to live. Dave has been very good about improving the salary structure uh, for our group. I I think that what we try to do is to, as much as we can, make it a very collegial place to work in so that people like to come to work every day. uh, And that uh, peace of mind may add a little bit up is regarding the the dollars that they're getting paid on their paycheck, although the pay has come up substantially under Dave. But I think in general, if I have somebody who I've worked with and who has done a great job and gets an opportunity for advancement, I would tend to encourage them to take the position if they see this as a step forward in their in their career. I wouldn't want to and, stand in that way. And Nick, when I hire someone, I say, I promise you, that I will look out for what's best for you as a human being and not what's just best for me as a boss. And sometimes I'll say, yeah, for children's hospital, it might be good for you to stay here, but for your career, I think it might be best to do that. So I think a real mentor has to put the human being first and the job second. And I think once people know that you're doing that and that you really have their back, you actually become more valuable as a mentor and people are less likely to leave. Yeah, I um, I definitely have had um, some interest in recruiting me elsewhere, and uh, I have been there because I felt like the most growth opportunity uh, that I could have was there with that team. Um, and I think that um, both of my mentors would have encouraged me to take other opportunities if they were better growth opportunities. I think that I was... <laughs> I was just lucky enough to be um, to have a really great growth opportunity there. And I I think that, you know, when people ask about Skaggs's shift, like that was um, that was his motivation in taking the position that he's just taken was that it was more opportunity for growth. Um, And coincidentally, that actually gave me some more opportunity for growth. Um, So I think it'll be something that's actually uh, good for us as a team um, moving forward. Yeah, so we should touch back to uh, you know my recent job switch, um, which may, it may look like I'm you know abandoning everybody, but the truth is that the big hospital that's so successful in town is going to build their own children's unit. So the question is, are we going to compete with them or are we going to be them? So right now we have four of our attendings there covering pediatric orthopedics, and the hope is it could almost become a second campus um, for this wonderful pediatric orthopedic group. And just hope that we keep the culture the same. And the other thing that Vern brought up, you know, podcasts are sometimes fun when you hear stuff like this. At one point, half of our attending surgeons were paid fifth percentile of national average. And LA is not cheap to live. So yeah, people left. And I just sit down with them and go, you know what? I think you should leave. You're not being paid enough and I can't pay you more. And sometimes it's not until that happens um, that all of a sudden support started coming. And things got better for the others. 
That's interesting. Wow. Well, good. So and with respect to everybody's time, I know that we've been talking for about an hour and I love this, but I, I, have, I have one final question and this is sort of the wisdom bomb question, which is you guys have a lot of collective wisdom and you've also learned a lot of collective wisdom. And I can think of, you know, things that I've learned from, from my mentors, uh, uh who I would call, I mean, you guys them as well, but uh, maybe if you could share one or two things that you've learned from somebody else on this uh, call that you've learned over time, uh, the wisdom that you've obtained through this relationship over the years. Okay, one thing Vern told me early on is there's always two sides to a story. So whenever anyone comes and gets really upset about something, don't t- take their side. Wait until you hear the other side of the story. That's really funny because I was actually going to say that, but I was going to say that as advice that you've given me because I, <laughs> I, I reference that as a sag quote. <laughs> so, no, see, I'm a phony. So, I just parrot burn. Well, and and that was um that was actually something that um the late Paul Troy told me. You don't actually have to be that smart. You just stand around Tolo and do what he tells you. <laughs> like so, um uh yeah the um the the conversation that we've just had has really shown me how much um, of the information that I've gotten from Skaggs has also come um, from Tolo originally. So it's really fun for me to listen and hear the lineage. Well, uh, I cannot thank you three enough. I mean, this has been terrific. This is exactly what I'd hoped. I mean, it really is sort of a unique lineage that you have out there. Um, you know, three people who have been super successful, who are so down to earth and I think have a lot to offer to the listeners, whoever wants to listen to this podcast, uh, about, you know, how to either be a mentee or probably a mentor. Um, and I'm sure that, uh, I, I certainly get asked a lot about it. How do I be a, a good mentee or, you know, how, do, how are you mentoring people? So I think that this provides them a lot. Um, and so I would thank you for your time and for providing a lot of information to the listeners. And I look forward to seeing you all soon, hopefully next month. <laughs>